Beloved, our call to worship this evening is from Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Scripture reading for this evening is from Ruth chapter 4. As we come to the close of this series tonight. Ruth chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to confirm all things. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. And Boaz said unto the elders and to all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilian's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. 
and he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they call his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat, begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. God bless the reading of his holy and life-giving word. Beloved, we've come to the last verses of the book of Ruth. And as we conclude our series, it feels as if we're saying goodbye to a a friend that we've gotten to know very well. It's painful in one sense to close this book. And yet, I trust the study of this book has been helpful for you as it has been for me. To see something of God's work of redemption and how he led Ruth and Naomi to Boaz, and through Boaz to see something of the person and the work of Christ. But tonight there's some unfinished business as we close out the book of Ruth. A promised redeemer is one thing, but what about a king? What about a king? In Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, we read of God's provision for a king for Israel. There, God says that he will provide a king. Israel wanted a king like the nations around them, and God said he would provide the king. And he says, Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren. Shalt thou set king over thee, Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Israel wanted a king like the nations, but God would set up a king after his own heart. And we're left, as we close the book of Ruth, with a gap, with a hole, with a need. A void left in Israel as we read the very last verse of Judges 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. How would God fill that void for his people? Who would God set up on the throne of Israel to rule and to guide and ultimately to redeem his people. God provided a redeemer in Boaz, but how would he provide a king? 
If Elimelech meant God is my king, how would God rule his people? Well, we saw last time that the birth of Obed was signaling to us a royal lineage. Verse 17 ends with Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And it ends there. But it's as if the writer of Ruth pauses for a moment and backs up in that lineage, back into the history of Israel and, and, and dips down into that history to prove God's faithfulness in providing a king. To trace out the gracious promise of a king running through a line of unspectacular people. As we're looking at these names tonight in these last verses of Ruth, we are reminded of the hope-filled promise. That when the book began, there was no king. But now as the book ends, in terms of its historical context, we have this hope-filled promise. A king is coming. A king is coming. Everything in the narrative has been working towards this. No king to the promise of a king. God's providence has been serving the purpose of redemption to bring King David to the throne. And so our theme tonight is simply this, a king is coming from an unlikely lineage. And when we have a list of names in the Bible, we often skip over them, don't we? As fathers and family worship, we're tempted to to skip over them because what are our kids going to glean from all these names. Maybe young people or children in your Bible reading, you skip over them. What do these names mean anyway? They're unfamiliar people. It doesn't really help us in our spiritual walk to, to consider who they are. We, we undervalue these parts of Scripture. But Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Even these names recorded here tonight, when taken in the context of Scripture, are part of that all Scripture that Paul is speaking about, inspired, breathed out by God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So we trust that God has given us these names to profit from tonight, to teach us who God is in the midst of this unlikely lineage. And so as we approach this genealogy, this lineage, I want to consider each of these names in turn for a moment to to see who they are and how God uses them to carry on the promise of the coming king. We'll bring out these names with with a little more vibrant color than, than what we just have here in terms of a name. Because each of these names is is spoken about in Scripture, is referenced in Scripture to some degree. The first name is Perez, or also known as Perez. The story of his birth is found in Genesis 38. Perez, as you know, is, is the son born to Judah and Tamar from an ungodly, a sinful union of a father with his daughter-in-law. Perez gains the upper hand 
over his twin Zerah in the womb. He comes out first. Even though his brother had the scarlet cord tied around his hand, his brother's hand came out first. And so the nurse tied that scarlet cord around the hand of Zerah. But then Pharaoh comes out first, gaining the upper hand over the firstborn. Here's an example of God overturning what man thought was the natural birth order and birthright. What seems unlikely to us is ordered by God. You can imagine the surprise of, of the midwife of, of Tamar as Pharaoh's came out first, no scarlet cord. How could that be? It was God ordering this birth to further the promise of the coming king. And so we see that God doesn't order His redemptive plan according to human thought and according to human order. This unlikely man born of an unlikely union, a sinful union even, is a man born to carry the promise of the never-departing royal scepter and the promise of a coming king as we read in Genesis 49 verse 10 as it regards the tribe of Judah. Out of the rubble of sin, God raises up this man, Pharez. He raises life and secures the promise of the coming king. Then there's Hezron also known as Esram. He's simply listed in every genealogy throughout Scripture, here in Ruth, and then in Matthew and Luke as well. Matthew 1 and Luke 4. For the rest, he's anonymous. There's nothing known about him. God has his reasons for including Hezron in this genealogy. He too carries on the promise of of the coming king. His name shows God's care over the lineage of promise. Then we have Ram, also known as Aram. He too is anonymous. He too is an unlikely man who serves God's redemptive purpose to further the line of, of 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 a coming king. Then there's Aminadab. Exodus 6.23 speaks of him. And Aaron took him Elishaba, daughter of Amminadab. So Aaron the high priest took Elishaba, the daughter of Amminadab, sister of Nashon, to wife, and she bare him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Nothing extraordinary in Amminadab, apart from the fact that he gives his daughter to Aaron the high priest to begin the priestly line for the worship of God in Israel. We could say here is the joining of the, of the priestly and the kingly line in Israel. If we're looking for fame and fortune, this is probably the closest we'll get. Here's another name that speaks to God's redemptive purposes in providing not just a king but a priest for Israel's worship. An ordinary man for, ex- for an extraordinary purpose. And there's Aminadab's son, Nashon. This is the closest we get to a kingly representation in the line of Pharez leading up to David. 
Nashon is the head of the tribe of Judah during Israel's desert wanderings, as we read in Numbers 1, verse 7, Numbers 2, verse 3, and Numbers 10, verse 14. In leading the tribe of Judah, he provides military leadership. In Numbers 7, verses 12 through 17, he's the leader of of worship for the tribe of Judah in bringing sacrifices and offerings. 1 Chronicles 2, verse 10 describes him as a prince or head of the children of Judah. But he is not the king for which Israel is looking. Though he stands in the line of the coming king. And then there's Salmon, known as Salah or Salma. What's significant about Salmon? He's the husband of Rahab, the harlot who hid the spies in Jericho. First generation inhabitant of the land of promise, part of the conquest. He, like Boaz, marries a Gentile woman. Here's the second Gentile woman brought into this line of, of men, the men of Israel and of Judah. He marries a woman that has no good reputation, but a woman who, like Ruth, God redeems for his own purposes. Out of this unlikely marriage between Jew and Gentile, Boaz is born. And the promise, the line of promise of a coming king continues. And then we have Boaz, a man of integrity in a time of lawlessness. A man of godliness and moral courage in a time of great spiritual declension. A man of generosity in a time where every man lived for himself. The kinsman redeemer of Naomi and Ruth. A man that lives for God in a godless age. An ordinary believer that God uses to bring forth the promise of a coming king through his marriage with Ruth, another Gentile. How many names are there here? About a dozen names. 25% of those men marry Gentile women. Boaz, the picture of Christ. His name is famous in Israel. But by all accounts, he was an ordinary man whom God used for extraordinary purposes. And then Boaz and Ruth gave birth to Obed, as we saw last Sunday evening. His name means servant. Mentioned in Ruth in the New Testament genealogies in Matthew and Luke, and nothing else is said apart from his place in the family. And then Jesse the father of King David. 1 Samuel 16, the father of eight sons, all of whom are rejected from being king, save one, the very youngest. Children, you know that when, when Samuel came to David, or when Samuel came to Jesse, he was, he was looking for the strongest. He was looking for the best man there. 
And God had told them, don't look on the outside. Don't judge by human standards because God doesn't look on the outside. God looks at the heart. And so we have Jesse here. Nothing that would suggest that Jesse has special standing in the nation of Israel. A man who is shockingly ordinary. No pageantry. No palace. No pomp. No external greatness that marks each of these men as standing in the line of a promised king. But men who are chosen, divinely chosen by God to serve and further His purpose of redemption and further the promise of a coming king to speak of hope, to speak of the faithfulness of God. And then there is the final name, David, the promised king who would deliver God's people and rule over them and typify the coming king, Jesus. He too was chosen by God, not because of who he was, because of who God would make him. I trust we know the history of David, a man after God's own heart, a man with deep flaws and sins on his record, and yet a man that God chose to rule his people, to use as a type of Christ, to point to the coming king. So all these men, from Pharaoh to Jesse, were pointing and moving towards the fulfillment of the promise of a coming king in David. And it's precisely, isn't it, in the insufficiency, in the human weakness of David, that we learn that there is a king coming beyond David. His name is Jesus, the son of David. So what do all these names teach us? Well, first they teach us that God works redemption in and through ordinary people, ordinary men, women, and children. We don't have to be princes or kings in order for God to work his work of grace in us. God worked His redemption in ordinary people. And so these names speak of the hope of redemption tonight for ordinary people, for ordinary sinners. We can come to an extraordinary God who saves and uses such as we are to further His work of redemption in the world. Hope for ordinary people. Hope for those in Moab. Hope for Rahab's, hope for Tamar's, hope for Ruth's, hope for Judah's, hope for David's. Hope for those who are on the outside, hope for the unlikely, hope even for the anonymous one here tonight. Hope in the coming King. So God works redemption and gives hope to ordinary people. And he uses ordinary people to further his work of redemption in the world. That ought to encourage us tonight. That through weak means, God fulfills his will. Our work doesn't have to be front and center. In the work of the church or the work of the kingdom. It can be a word here. It can be a word there. We may not make the annals of history for the work that we've done, but God is pleased to use ordinary people for the extraordinary work of redemption. 
Secondly, these names teach us that God's faithfulness stretches throughout the generations. God's faithfulness stretches throughout the generations. Each of these names represents a person, a generation in the line of the coming king. But they also represent God's faithfulness in bringing this promise to fruition that a king is coming, not only in David, but also in Christ. And we take this lineage, these names, we find it taken up in Matthew 1 and Luke 4, exactly as it's written here, tracing the line of Christ the King, signaling to us that that God is faithful in keeping His promises. He means what He says. Even a list of names as mundane as this list of names speaks to us of the faithfulness of God in keeping the promise of a coming king, of a redeemer king, whose name is Christ. Thirdly, despite a lack of political and spiritual leadership in the land of Israel during those days, these names remind us, as it did those original readers, that a a king was coming to bring peace and stability and redemption for God's people. That's happy news for us as well this evening, isn't it? In a time of spiritual declension, in a time of of a lack of spiritual leadership in our nation, politically and ecclesiastically, this is happy news. You can be assured tonight that Christ is on the throne of heaven, giving peace and stability and a coming full redemption for His people. He will bring His people to a glorious future because He is the coming King. And so it's from this unlikely lineage that God brings forth a promise and fulfills the promise of a coming king in the person of David. For us tonight, as we look back, we have the full picture of this lineage reaching all the way to Christ. For us, the king has come, the son of David. He's come to bring his people to a glorious future. And so this lineage here ends in David. The New Testament genealogy takes this line of ordinary men and and women a step further in God's saving purposes. We need to read these names in light of Matthew 1 and Luke 4. Without those genealogies in the New Testament, we don't have a grid through which we read these names tonight. The book of Ruth ends with the name David. David would be the promised king. At the end of the book of Judges, there was no king. But in God's provision, there was now the promise of a coming king. As we look ahead briefly to the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, this king would be the one who would bring in a glorious future. A future on two levels. First, On the national, political, spiritual level, David's name here speaks of the hope of a glorious future for Israel. Children, you remember what David meant to Israel. He was their warrior even before he was their king. Slaying Goliath with one 
well-placed stone in the forehead from the sling of David. A man of courage. Spiritual courage. He was on the run from Saul and yet preserved by God. He and his men slew the Philistines again and again. He expanded the borders of Israel. He led Israel in the worship of God, returning the ark of God to its place of rest in the tabernacle. He brought peace to Israel, further securing Israel's place in the promised land. David was the man after God's own heart. David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. David was an eminent type of Christ in the Old Testament in spite of his faults and sins. The book of Ruth ends with the name David. The name Boaz was glorious. The name of David is even more glorious. It speaks of the glorious future that await, would await Israel after the, after the dark times of the judges. It would speak to the rule and reign of their Redeemer King. And so the book of Ruth ends on this note. A king is coming. A king of God's own choosing. This name would instill hope in the hearts of the faithful Israelite. Hope that better days were coming. For those who saw the reign of David, indeed, that hope would be fulfilled. But there's more, isn't there? There's more. How much more this name David ought to instill hope in your and my hearts tonight. Even as the book of Ruth ends with David, we know that the story And the promise continues beyond David. We turn to the New Testament. We follow the names that come after David. More ordinary people, more names, more sinful men and women. But one name stands out above them all at the very end of that list. Jesus. Jesus. He is the coming King. He is the conquering king. He is the king of glory. As we end with that name tonight, it speaks of the hope of a glorious future. The son of David. Better days are coming, beloved. He comes to bring peace into the hearts of His people. To instill that peace in our hearts tonight. He promises a bright and glorious future as He reigns. As He brings world history to its climax ruling over all, with all things coming under subjection to His feet, even as history unfolds before us, we have no reason to be discouraged tonight. Treading Satan underfoot shortly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he promises an eternity of worship in His presence without sin, the tabernacle of God amongst men. This glorious future calls us to Revelation 5. The book of scrolls of human history is waiting to be opened. There's only one worthy to open that scroll. One of the elders speaks to John who is weeping and he says in verse 5, Weep not. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Here is the end, beloved, of the genealogy, the climax of the book of Ruth, the climax of Scripture, the climax of human history, the Lamb who is worthy to be worshipped, the great Son of David who sits on the throne, 
He speaks tonight through these mundane names. And he says, I am the fulfillment of these names. He calls out to those who are hungry, to those who are bitter, to those who are weak in themselves. And he says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will, let him take the water of, of the water of life freely. Wow. The book of Ruth brings us back to Pharaohs and brings us all the way into heaven to Christ, the son of David, the bright and morning star. Moves us forward to consider God's full redemption that is coming in our Redeemer King. Are your eyes looking for Him tonight as we close out the book of Ruth? The king who is coming to finish his business of redemption, who is ruling over us even now, bringing all things, folding all things into its climax. We can say with conviction tonight, a king, our king, is coming. Our king is coming. You say, but how do I live? How do I live in light of that coming king? How do I live in light of world history coming to its close? How do I, how do I live in light of the fulfillment of, of what is written in these names tonight? How do I live in light of what has been spoken of in the book of Ruth tonight? So how do we live in light of the son of David who is the coming king? I want to re- use four words Four action words as we conclude our series on Ruth to send you home tonight. The first word is return. Return to our coming King. Throughout the book of Ruth, we saw how the word return was a picture of repentance. Naomi returns to Bethlehem from the land of Moab. Ruth returns from idol worship to worship the true and living God. They left the land of emptiness, returned to the place of fullness, left a spiritual desert to the place of promise and the presence of God. Beloved, you and I are called to return to our Redeemer King, not just once, but again and again. In the words of Martin Luther, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. All of the Christian life is one of returning to our King again and again and again for the fullness that we need in place of the emptiness of our own sin and of our own hearts. To unbelievers tonight, you're called to return to the coming King now. In the words of Psalm 2, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. 
The coming King calls believers to return and to keep returning, leaving the emptiness of our own hearts to feed off His generous hearts. Calls unbelievers to come with the emptiness of your soul tonight, the emptiness of your life in Moab in the world, and to feed on Christ for what your soul needs. Return. And don't stop returning until your king takes you home or until he returns on the clouds. Secondly, we rest in our coming king. We rest in our coming king. In Ruth 2 and 3, we were counseled again and again to rest under the wings of our Redeemer King to rest in the protection of our King. What a blessed place to rest as we experience the ravages of this world, the grief of loss, the guilt of sin, the glamour of temptation, the grating of doubt, The seriousness of a culture's rejection of God and His Word. What better place than to rest in our coming King? Because our coming King has victory in His hand. He's holding the world in His hand. He's on the throne and He's coming to redeem fully and finally. There's a place of protection the coming King tonight for believers. He bids you rest. Rest until He comes again and finishes the work that He's begun in you. In a world of frantic activity, in a world of kingdoms that rise up against the Lord and against His anointed, here is a place of quiet rest. The arms under the banner of the love of our King, rest there until He takes you home or comes again and finishes that work that He's begun in you. Don't despair, but rest. Remember the words of Hebrews 4, 9, there remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. He's coming. He's coming. To bring you and me to the fullness of that rest, O oh, blessed thought. Can you rest there again tonight? He's coming. He's coming to take you home. Thirdly, reap in the fields of the King. Reap in the fields of the King. The now, between the now and the not yet, resting doesn't mean idleness. We've seen that from from Ruth herself. She goes out into the fields and she gleans and she goes home with the fullness of the king's bounty. She is already, as it were, receiving the down payment of the inheritance that is coming, that is already laid up in store for the people of God. And so we reap as the activity of faith. We reap And we work until the King comes again.
faithfully working in the fields of the king, bringing in the harvest, as it were, not just for our own souls, but bringing in others under the rule and the reign of of our coming king. We reap in the fields that are white for harvest. We've been encouraged already in that tonight, haven't we? God uses ordinary people, ordinary men and women and children to bring in the lost. Reap in the fields of the king until he comes again. And fourthly, rejoice. Rejoice in our coming king. What happened when Naomi's faith was rekindled by the kindness of the Lord? She rejoiced in God, didn't she? When the women of Bethlehem hear of the birth of the child, what do they do? They bless the Lord. There's rejoicing in what God has done. As we look back on how the narrative of Ruth unfolds and the grace and the faithfulness of the Lord, we can rejoice in our coming King. This is His work if He did it for Ruth and Naomi. In bringing them out of Moab to experience His redemption and rule, then surely He will do it for you and me today. He is coming, the Son of David, our King. Let us rejoice and bless His name forever. Look above the fray, my friend. Our Redeemer, our Husband, our King is coming. Rejoice in Him. Find your joy in your life in Him again and again. Lift your eye to Him tonight. The history of Ruth ends with David, with a man, a coming king. The history of the world ends and eternity begins with the Son of David. Rejoice in our coming King, the one who is worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. All these things be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever, the Son of David. The King is coming. Are you looking for him? Amen. O Lord, we pray that Thou wilt help us. Help us, O Lord, to return to Thee again and again in confession and repentance. Help us, O God, to rest in Thee again and again when anxiety and fear and doubt and sin pushes its way into our lives, Lord, we pray that Thou will help us to look up to our coming King and rest in the victory that is ours, guaranteed in the cross of the King of the Jews. Help us, O God, to reap in Thy fields 
to reap a rich gospel bounty, a rich harvest for our own souls, but also reaping in the fields that are white for harvest of men and women in Moab who are crying out their emptiness of soul, the bitterness of spirit. O God, we cry out, bring them in through us. Use us as ordinary men and women and children to further thy purposes of redemption in the world. Lord, help us finally to rejoice in thee, our coming King, to ascribe unto thee blessing and honor and glory all that is is belonging unto thee by right, for the right of redemption. For thou hast redeemed us unto thyself from every tribe and kindred and tongue. Thou art worthy. Thou art the Lamb. Thou art the King seated upon the throne. We thank Thee, O God, for Thy faithfulness, the life of Naomi, the life of Ruth, the life of Boaz, the life of Israel, the life of David, the life of these men that we consider tonight, even in our lives. We pray that Thy faithfulness would continue. We know it will. But help us to lean upon that faithfulness day in and day out for our own lives, for for the lives of our children, for the next generations to come after us. Thou wilt continue that line of promise until thou wilt come again. Lift our eyes to thee, O God, our coming King, the turbulence of the kingdoms of this world, seeing that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. O God, we look to thee, Thou art our boast, Thou art our glory, Thou art our power, Thou art our coming King. We confess this, we ask all this, in Thy name alone, the matchless name of Jesus, the Son of David. Amen.